everyone and welcome to another episode of Making It EV, your podcast about EVs. Today, Bernsey and myself spoke to Martin Messer, who is an EV consultant from Denmark. Denmark has a much higher uptake of EVs than Australia, and we were really interested to find out what can Australia learn from Denmark and where are we going in the future. Let's take a listen. Well, Martin, thanks so much for joining us on Making It EV. We're super excited to talk to you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and and the work that you're doing? Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me on. And I've been working as a consultant in electric vehicles and charging for the last 10 years here in Denmark. Uh, And I've been doing a lot of studies about the the progression in in Europe in general, but the Especially in the Nordics, there's been so much going on, uh, actually, right from the beginning. So it is super exciting to to see what has been done in Europe. Uh, and I hope I can uh, do a bit of a uh, yeah, storytelling for, for, for you so you can have some experience from, from, from our progression here. Oh, man, that, that sounds super exciting to, to talk you through that. I mean, the, we were just um, kind of talking offline, but... We were saying that, that in some way what's interesting is that Denmark is in the future of the, the ways in which you guys have adopted EVs into your lifestyle. Um, but then we were doing the time zone chat and we realised that Australia is actually eight hours ahead. So you guys are in the future in one respect, but we're in another. Yes, uh, that, that that's correct. Uh, but I, I understand that it's going very fast in Australia now, which is very, very nice to see. Uh, and that, that is also what we have seen in Denmark, that it, at some point the incentives for buying EVs were uh, suddenly really, really attractive. So the, the uptake was going surprisingly quickly for everybody. Uh, and, and that has been quite a challenge because it takes a long time to, to, to build charging stations. Uh, that can take one or two years from when you find the suitable land till the charger is actually working. Uh, it takes time to install it, but also get the suitable grid connection. So from when the EVs are really taking off, suddenly it, it, the, the charging network will be behind for quite a while. That has been quite painful, for in, especially in Denmark at some point. So it is very important to see if you can time this uh, correctly. Uh, but there are so many factors that really depends on on the takeoff of of EVs. Like we saw Tesla suddenly lowering the prices, that had a huge impact here uh, in Denmark and 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 all of, of Europe. And that was no one really expecting that. So uh, to get the timing right between the right amount of charges and the right amount of EVs will be something that will be challenging for the next uh, many years in in. In many countries yeah could you it's interesting to hear that but what, what about how would you describe a scenario where that pain is really quite noticeable right so in a day-to-day life um if the charging isn't quite there how does that actually kind of occur in your day-to-day so we need to distinguish between you can charge at home or you cannot charge at home because people that can charge at home with a modern EV, they have a, a nice range of three or 400 kilometers. So they don't need to ch- charge in public very often. Uh, they only need to charge in public when they're going really long distance. Uh, so they will be dependent on chargers, you know, three or 400 kilometers away from where they live. Uh, 
and there should be a sufficient amount of charges to go to the next big city or, or wherever you, you normally travel. Uh, so if there's not enough there, you feel very uncomfortable going long distance. Uh, but if you live in a, in a place where you cannot charge at home, it's very painful if there's not enough charges because you apparently need to charge like two or three times a week. Uh, so if there's not enough street charges or fast charges in, in the area, it is uh, not easy to own an EV, that's for sure. You might actually just find yourself waiting in a queue of, of people to get to a charger. Is that how it might kind of come to life? Or why the, where, how, how the actual painful part there? Yeah, exactly. Finding a, a, a charger when you really need it is, is, is not easy. And uh, you might be in for a wait, uh, which is very unpredictable. That's also one of the things if you want to go a long distance. And you know how long time it takes to drive. And if you know your car, you know how, how long you need to charge. But it's very unpredictable if you need to add in a, a certain amount of time for waiting, which you don't know how, how much queue there will be. So that's the really uncomfortable if you have a deadline like being to a meeting or uh, something like that. So that, that's the problem when, when there is a lack of, of charges. I was going to ask, Martin, when you spoke earlier about the uptake of electric vehicles, was there a tipping point? Like, did it grow exponentially? I mean, not literally overnight, but essentially overnight? Or was it, has it been, you know, maybe a decade of, of work from government and other people pushing it through in maybe in Denmark or, or Scandinavia as a whole? Yeah, so the, the, it's absolutely uh, interesting because the government in Denmark has done quite a bit with no tax on EVs for, for a long time. And that didn't really help a lot because the EVs were still very expensive and there were very few of them. So it was not a really interesting market. But suddenly it hits a, a sweet spot where people can see that the incentives really work because an EV and a similar petrol car is almost the same price. And then it gets really, really interesting. And now with the many, many different models we have and uh, almost all of the, the manufacturers have EVs, then that really almost overnight hit a, a sweet spot where the EVs are extremely popular. Uh, so it is very, very sensitive and it's very hard to predict exactly from the different market when, when that sweet spot is, is being hit. And it also comes down to, again, as I said, if, there, if you hear the story that there's actually quite a lot of charges, you feel comfortable that this might be the right time to, to jump in and, and have an EV. So there's many different factors uh, involving in, in, in this yeah, I think I'm from from our perspective in Australia. When you were talking before about you know distances driving, I almost had a little like laugh internally because you know the distances in Denmark versus the distances in Australia always can't compare. When you're in the sense when you're doing maybe a slightly longer drive than usual, you, you, you're going potentially a lot further here in Australia with less infrastructure because. You know, it's it's different states. It's suddenly you're in a much more regional area. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting. I think that's probably the biggest issue for people here. It's just there's no trust that they won't break down somewhere because there's no sense of where the charges are and, and what's actually coming up for them. So, yeah, that's kind of at least that, that's the benefit you probably have with sort of more compact cities and compact areas. 
Yeah, yeah. In you're right. Denmark is a small country, but we like to drive longer distance in our holidays. Uh, so we see Denmark is as part of you know a broader perspective of Europe. So we like to drive down to the Alps, like twelve hundred kilometers, and and also Norway and others. So, uh, but but you're right. But it it also comes down to uh, there's a, been a lot of focus in Europe about exactly people that drive nonstop to the Alps overnight uh, at really high speed in Germany. And they say, I will never buy an EV before I can do that, you know, thousand kilometers on the German autobahn. And uh, it's very obvious that these people that wants to do that will not be the first movers to EVs. They will be the last ones. But they have a lot of, uh, they, they do a lot of noise online when you read in forums and stuff like that. But the, the truth is a lot of people don't drive uh, so long distance very often. Uh, and when they do, they like to have a break every two or three hours because that's what they used to and feel uncomfortable driving so so many hours without a stop. So focus on the people that can actually have an EV right now, who uh, the people that can charge at home and very seldom drive like uh, Sydney to Melbourne or stuff like that. And so and there would probably be a lot of people that say, yeah, but I, I seldom drive long distance. I take a plane or a bus or whatever. Uh, so these people can very, very easily uh, technically have an EV right now. Uh, and there's so many of these people also in Denmark and Europe that doesn't drive long distance very often. So uh, focus mm -hmm. on those that can actually do it right now and, and leave the others uh, doing a bit of noise online and uh, wait till, till the technology improves. Uh, so yeah. I think that's very important message. It's interesting um, when you think about it like that because, and maybe this could be a bit of a reflection on the journey that Denmark and and a, a similar and country, the Nordic countries have been on, is in that in Australia the two most popular cars on the roads are uh, a Ute <laughs> and a, a larger size SUV, right? Um, and that seems to be like the biggest most popular cars. But then what we see is uh, a lot of the EVs that are coming to Australia are much smaller, uh, with less range, and would probably suit more of a you know really kind of more of a city environment than say doing long distances every day uh, in and around the countryside. Did you was that something similar when you saw that journey of how it was being adopted that those little cars came in first and then and then they started getting bigger and more attractive to a broader market? So it's a bit of the other way around in some of the countries in the Nordic that we have used, we are used to relatively small cars and the SUV has been a growing segment for sure. But that came about the same time as, as many of the EVs. So we haven't seen that, uh, that difficulty as you, as you see there. But uh, for us, the many of the SUVs that we have uh, as an EV, Tesla Model Y and Skoda and, and all these, they fit quite perfectly into the size of, of car that we, you would buy anyway, or might even be a bit larger. So, so we find that absolutely fine for us. But, but again, many of the youths that are driving around in the bigger cities, uh, they, they might not go very long distance either. Uh, and of course, if you live in the countryside, it's a, it's a very, very different uh, thing, but, uh, but still many of these could be, be electric in, in maybe two or three years uh, easily. I mean, I live quite in a city here in, in Sydney and when you see those big Range Rovers just zooming past, and I think, where are you going? They're not going anywhere. <laughs> like they probably live down the road and they're going 10 kilometres and 10 kilometres that way and that's it. And they have 
a massive gas guzzling fossil car for no reason except for it to be big, really, and they can just show it off. So they they yep. they frustrate me the most because they always try to run me over as well. <laughs> <laughs> that that's an issue, and and look at the the average amount of kilometers that people drive. Uh, so you will be able to to cover most of your driving if you can again charge at home and. Then you need to solve the the, the the few very long distance. That that's the point, uh, and also for many of these extremely big SUVs that we see in many cities, especially. And I, I've actually I've been reading and and I understand that um, the, the the kind of car and driving lifestyle in in the Nordic countries and in Denmark is actually quite similar to Australia in a sense, in in as much as. Yeah, it's very kind of a proud car country, but it's also like you mentioned before, you you would go going on, you enjoy going on trips and traveling and being out on the road, which is a very big part of Australian culture too. Um, but I've, I've I've heard the one of the biggest differences is that EVs um, can be a bit better in Australia, but because it doesn't require um, as like maintaining the cold as much as the Nordics do, because that can take up battery life. Um, is that is that right? That's fully correct. Uh, the biggest factor for an EV in terms of range is actually the speed. So when you go above 110 kilometers an hour, it really starts to, to lower the range. And if it's windy, headwind and, and rain, that also, and, and cold for that matter, that also really de decreases the range quite a bit. So uh, that is a big factor. And therefore, it's also a bit hilarious that Norway is one of or the absolute most uh, successful EV countries in the world because they've got long distance, they've got mountains and extreme cold in, in winter, but they still love to drive their, their EVs and there are so many there. So it works in, in many conditions. And again, if you don't drive very long, it, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, that, that's that's the, what the Norwegians really love. I just wanted to comment that it sounds fascinating that uh, even though there might be the Nordic countries such as Norway who kind of a, uh, have really rugged terrain and then it's kind of a difficult thing for EVs to really kind of be, be efficient there, they still adopt them. They, it still, they still came on board even though such as in Australia, people are, are, are worried about it because it doesn't, they, they think it may not fit the Australian lifestyle or the Australian geographic location where in fact it sounds perfect for it if the, if the you know, Norwegians can do it. Exactly. I was going to ask, uh, Martin, in your role, what are some of the biggest challenges you're dealing with in, in trying to increase that charging infrastructure and, and just improve that process of having an EV and, and being able to use it in Denmark? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Uh, there's been some issues in Denmark with the municipalities that they were not allowed to put up uh, charges. They had uh, really difficult finding the right uh, laws and, and, and the right circumstances to do tenders. That took quite a while and has, that has slowed down the, the amount of AC charges and fast charges in the cities. Um, and uh, also that uh, it, it, in the beginning, it was the energy companies investing in this. So they built up networks in Denmark, two of the biggest ones. And the oil companies, they were fast asleep. And then suddenly they woke up saying, oh, we are, we are late to the game. This is actually happening. 
So now all the oil companies are setting up fast charges and ultra fast charges at, at the gasoline stations, uh, which is very nice. Uh, but the, now the issue is that some of the best spots along the motorways, they've been taken by the first movers. So if you want to come in as a charge point operator now in Denmark, it's really, really painful because you will not get the best location and the next best location is still very expensive because a lot of uh, you know different companies have asked for that space. So uh, being a first mover can have big advantage uh, as a charge point operator. Uh, so we, we see a lot of uh, companies fighting for, for, for being the next big uh, uh, yeah, energy provider like the Circle K or whatever the the oil companies are named. So that that's a very very big fight now, and that has been quite difficult. And the next big difficult thing is it takes quite a long time to get the available grid ca- capacity in some of the locations. Uh, not only we want to install a lot of charges, but we also you know want to have new buildings and do wind turbines and and solar parks. So there's a lot of Grid enforcement and that's going on. So it can take between six and eighteen months to get the grid capacity in place for for some charges, and that's a very long waiting time. Uh, yeah, so that is some of the challenges we see. It sounds a little bit like chicken and the egg. Obviously, you want to have as many people as possible excited and going out and buying buying and owning EVs in order to show that there is demand and passion for it in order to encourage councils and energy providers, et cetera, to build these charging stations and other infrastructure. But if you have too many people owning vehicles all of a sudden, there's nowhere to charge. So then it's very frustrating or then it becomes extremely expensive. And as you said, you can't, you know, set this infrastructure up any quicker, really. It's going to take a year to 18 months or two years. So, yeah. you know, what do you do? I mean, if you, if you could go back in time and, you know, let's say Australia is back in time in terms of the EV deployment, what would you tell us to do first? So one of the things you need to do is, is um, even though your states are really huge, it would still be very good if they were to stay, this, there was sort of a coordination of, of building a, a network uh, along the main roads. Uh, so there will be, sort of an equal amount of charges in all states, at least to begin with. So defining the main routes where you want to deploy charges and give an incentive to someone to, to build these uh, hubs, uh, charging hubs in, in the right locations. That would mean a lot for the EV uptake because when you see that there's charges all along the, not along, all along all of them, but many of them, the main roads, you will see that, oh, I can actually do it, then I'm fine uh, buying an EV. And, and that needs to be on 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 a, on, a, on a, the whole country level and not up to the individual state or municipality. And it, it, it I know Australia is big, but there aren't that many major routes after all that people usually drive. So uh, it might not be that complicated as as you think, but the, that's just necessary to do a, a plan for the whole country to make sure that this is actually going to happen. Uh, almost at, at the same time. That that would be my 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 main focus. But uh, but again, what what can the municipalities do? Uh, that is also really really an important role. So they can do the tenders that actually makes the the uptake of, of charging in the cities uh, going really fast. What about the other 
kind of charging you mentioned before. You said there was two. There's one that where you use the fast chargers and the other charging points um, in the in the urban areas and on the street. And then there's the people that charge at home. I'm assuming using solar or essentially from the grid. Yeah. How like or what's that? What's that side of it like? Is is that you know any better or are they still kind of clearer pain points there? So charging at home is, is is still the absolute best way to do it in for so many reasons because uh, if you drive a normal like 100 kilometers a day or in Denmark we even only drive like like 50 or 60 kilometers a day on average and if you have a large battery for for the normal modern EVs you only need to charge once or twice a week so that means you can shift your charging to the really cheap uh, periods which is also normally where the, the electricity is green here in the Nordics because we either have a lot of sun or a lot of wind. So in that matter, you will normally charge at a really green electricity when the, when the electricity is really green, but also when the load on, on the grid is, is the smallest. So uh, that is also very important because if we have a lot of people charging in the streets, at the same time that you're cooking in the afternoon or running the AC and all that, that will put a really, really big load on, on the grid, which is, will not be suitable in, in, in some of the locations to, to, to stand that. So having um, a focus on smart charging uh, is very, very important. And maybe you can incentivize that also uh, so you will get really, really cheap electricity at home when you, when you charge your, your EV. Uh, that will help a lot, so we don't need to enforce the grid. In I guess in the, the kind of areas that you're familiar with, um, is bi-directional uh, starting to become um, something that's in the market at the moment? Uh, no, actually not. And there's one specific reason for that. Uh, it has been tested a lot, and there are some cars running on bi-directional assisting the grid when, when they're not driving. But Today, it's only the standard for the Japanese cars, the Chademo cars that can do that. All the others with the CCS connector that we have, most of them in Europe, they cannot do that uh, yet. That hopefully comes out and starts in one or two years. We really, really look forward to that because that would have a huge uh, meaning on exactly on the local grid, but also it can actually support the, the larger grid uh, enormously also. So... That is hopefully going to be something big, uh, and I'm really also fascinating by that. So I'm following it quite closely here. And is there? Um, do you foresee, or have you read about any, you know, possible complexities that something like that could bring? I mean, it's really exciting, but it's also, you know, almost quite transformative in terms of how we might manage energy in, in a, you know, in a mass uh, level. Yeah, is there anything on your mind that might think like, oh, gee, well, it sounds great, but we're going to have to maybe watch these other factors around that as well in order to make sure that nothing breaks or, you know, we need to be responsible about it too. Yeah, so there's the very obvious one is a battery warranty. If you use your car for something else than driving, it's quite difficult to exactly understand um, how much uh, wear you will have on the battery. That's also why some of the uh, manufacturers have been very reluctant for this technology. Also because you can have some, some uh, different energy markets where you just stand by with your battery and only use it very, very 
briefly for like half an hour once a week, you get quite well paid for that. But you can also have services where you deplete the battery exactly when you're cooking and then charge it fully at night. So you will do a lot of wear on your battery. So there's so many services you can do with this. So that's why the warranty thing is a bit complex. Uh, but the batteries get better and better and they have liquid cooled, uh, you know, they're liquid cooled. So that, that will be hopefully solved. Uh, but there's also the usual IT worry that uh, if someone, an aggregator, is uh, aggregating many, many electric vehicles, there is also some issues that if they get hacked, they can actually do something really bad for the grid. So there is an equally amount of complexity to do this uh, as there is an advantage to it. Uh, it. It sounds really easy and nice, but it, it, it's relatively complex. But but we have to go there, in my opinion, because it's such a big capacity you have in your driveway that you're not using when you don't drive it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I was going to ask something a little bit different, uh, Martin, is understanding the Danish people in terms of their environmental or sustainability literacy. You know, are they well-educated on the positives of EVs and electric vehicles and this kind of green future, or are there only certain, you know, parts of society that know a lot, but yet there's still a lot of people that are catching up? You know, what's what's that mood? What's the knowledge like around this space in Denmark? Yeah, so that's really, really interesting because the first many years, it was the first movers, the technical people, the uh, environmental nerds that was really into electric vehicles, trying to understand it. And those were the ones buying the, the, the first EVs. But now the prices are so good and the technology is so much improved that a lot of people are choosing the EV just because it's a better car. It drives better, it feels better. Uh, and uh, also because people worrying about the residual value of a petrol or diesel car now. They, they know that if they buy a new petrol or diesel car, the residual value will be really, really low at some point. So that's also one of the arguments why people say, I have to buy the new technology because the other thing can be really, really expensive for me. So now people are not so much buying EVs because of the environment, but because, just because it's a better car and they understand that this is the way the, the world moves. Yeah, I find I find that really interesting because I think... I'm sure that definitely plays a massive part in Australia as well, that people are still not seeing the value, like the literal financial value of one over the other. Uh, but there also is such a battle for minds in terms of just convincing people of the value of the environment <laughs> as well and that it's it's worth the extra bit of money or the extra bit of effort because in the larger picture, it is it is the future. It is the right thing to do. We're still very behind in that kind of thinking. Um, but as you said, maybe the tipping point, the sweet spot is when it's, you know, we reach car parity. Essentially, it's, it's A or B. It's basically the same, but this will destroy the environment and this is good for it. And you go, well, I'll just take that one because everything else is about the same or better. Um, so, which depresses me a little bit. I would prefer people to have more noble... Noble aspirations for the environment. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. But the, the important thing is also something in the car industry called the neighboring effect. 
when your neighbor has a new car and is really, really happy about it, uh, and in this case, the EV, you, you tend to ask him, why are you so happy about it? Why does it work for you? Uh, and then he's really excited and tell you all the details. And then you realize, okay, if it works for, for my neighbor, it, it will work for me as well or a colleague or something like that. So you need to get to a certain level within this and people starting to see that someone you know is super excited about this technology. And then you realize that they drive a lot better and uh, are much more comfortable and you can preheat or pre-cool them before you go into it. And uh, all these uh, very, very nice factors. And then the environment debate is, of course, still here uh, about the, the energy use for batteries and all that. But uh, it, it sort of is, is, is not so much talked about anymore because that's just the way we, we, we are going now, for sure. So, I mean, we, we met at the Fully Charged show just recently. Uh, and so you were down in Australia um, for that show, but to do other things as well, of course, to enjoy our wonderful weather. Um, and well, we were wondering, um, since you've been able to have a look at Australia when you were here, um, is there anything um, that you've noticed um, as being maybe one of some of the biggest differences between Australia um, and Denmark, just more generally. Obviously, there's not as many EVs. That's the obvious one. But um, any anything else that you've been able to like, pay attention now that since you visited? Yeah, it is obviously the the longer distance and the, the less density in in between the big cities. That is uh, something that's very different. But it that could also mean that you can acquire land along the main roads uh, for quite cheap because there's no one else that wants the land there. In Denmark, we are so dense that even along the motorways, the land has quite a high value uh, because people want to build industrial areas or something like that. So uh, you might have a quite a, a, a big advantage in this. But uh, if you want to build a large charging hub, it's very important that there are some amenities like toilets and uh, coffee and stuff like that where you stop. That's something EV owners are really, really happy about because then you feel it's a break anyway. Uh, that you need it. So if you need to charge like half an hour, that is usually what your break would be after three hours driving. So, uh, yeah, so that's the the way to do it. But uh, apart from that, I think uh, you you just need to step up on, on, on the charging. I think that is something that is very, very important now. So you feel comfortable that you can do the main routes that you usually do when you go longer distance. Uh, so I think that's, that's where Australia needs to go and show a, a, a good plan on that. And we have more koalas, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of a difference between the wildlife, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's it's interesting with this new federal strategy that has been unveiled by our government just to see how everything is now planned from that federal level, as you are saying, Martin, pulling all the states together under one cohesive strategy and actually planning those charging hubs instead of letting everything become ad hoc or run by local councils. So this does seem like a big tipping point in us at least getting organised a bit better. Maybe not so much the deployment of everything straight away but recognising that there needs to be a larger picture in how we do this Uh, because I think... There, there are definitely pockets of councils, especially around the more affluent areas, at least that I know of here in Sydney, who are very excited about 
setting up charger stations and and wanting you know local community feedback, which is great. But I but I think of the analogy which happens a lot here, especially in Sydney, where a progressive council gets really excited about a project like bicycle lanes, and they will build yeah. the bicycle lane up until the border of the next council. Exactly. <laughs> which hasn't adopted that. And so suddenly the bicycle lane stops and the cyclists are like, well, great, I can cycle two kilometres and then I have to get on the road because the other council didn't adopt it. So it feels a little bit like that could also be happening where unless you have, you know, maybe the neighbour effect but for councils. <laughs> yes. Uh, and that also happens, by the way, which is quite quite funny. But the... Uh, Yep. Uh, having some plans for the longer distance is is important. That's for sure. Uh, that that would help a lot on on people's confidence in buying an EV. Also, that that was really good. That was a really good point to to finish on. That was really nice, Nina. You're welcome. That's good. <laughs> Very nice. Well, I think we uh, yeah, I think we'd just say a, a massive thank you um, to you, uh, Martin, and for you know giving us your time and and sharing your perspective. It's been it's been very insightful. Thank you, Martin. Thank you so much for being on. Amazing. Next time uh, we'll um, we'll have to get you down here into the future so you can tell us about your your future. <laughs> that would be very nice. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to our latest episode of Making It EV. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts? Please send us an email, hello at makingitev.com. And of course, this podcast is recorded at Forbes Street Studios on Gadigal land. Thanks to the team here, especially Anthony, who is a recording king and keeps us in check. Thank you, everyone. And you can find out more about us on our website, makingitev.com, and also follow us on Instagram, making underscore it underscore EV. Thanks, everyone, and happy driving. <laughs> <laughs>